thank you. Owen's given me 45 minutes to speak because he used to watch me play football and he knew I was never good in the second half. He said, so <laughs> first 45, you're all right. Anything over that, you start to flag. So yeah, it, Owen's right. You know, I've, I've known Owen quite a few years now and we do speak we, and we speak about, about the church. And um, so I've been kept up to date on, on this church and from its inception and, and, and the planting and all the difficulties that go along with that. So it's encouraging for me to come here and a great joy to be with you all and to see the guys come out to Owen's house on Friday and to be with a lot of these young guys who are really on fire and, and really willing and ready to learn and, and grow in the Lord. And then um, yesterday evening we had a, a prayer meeting where several churches got together. It was mainly Beacon people there um, and a lot of people travelled a long way to be there. And um, you know, I know that it can be hard work when you're you're planting a church, you're part of a, a new church, but um, it reminded me this morning, I was thinking, and uh, there, is a, there is a flower that grows in a very remote part uh, of the desert where hardly anybody's been but, but certain scientists. And this particular flower blooms only once a year. Once a year, I think it's in June, for one night. It blooms and it opens out into a beautiful white flower and then it closes up again. So you think... Why? What's the purpose? And the purpose is that God sees it. It doesn't mean that everyone else has to see it. The purpose is that God sees it, and God sees your heart, and God sees purity. And what God wants is not great numbers, though there may be numbers. God wants a purity in his people, a faithfulness in his people. And so last night was a great example of, of faithful Christians coming together to pray for the church and for the ripple-out effects for the Olympics. And so uh, we move on to the, to the text today. Before that, I just wanted to say that the Lord called me to pastoral ministry about six years ago now, and I've been in Canada for four years um, doing some studies at, at seminary, and uh, I live in the Rocky Mountains uh, in, uh, in Alberta. Um, I live halfway up a mountain. It's about four and a half thousand feet high, and I look out and I just see this vista of, of mountains, and it's... it's uh, it's quite tremendous, although it's extremely cold from, from, from November through to, to March. It's, it gets down to minus 25, minus 30 degrees, and I used to complain about the British weather, but never again. So I've, I've been out there studying. I'm now uh, in pastoral ministry in a church in Calgary where I'm the home missionary pastor there. Um, so on to the, the text today, and just before I read the text, it's going to be from Revelation 5. Um, I want to say this to you. I want to say that um, the substance of your Christian life and the effectiveness of your Christian life will be determined by your vision of God, by how big your vision of God is. And, you know, if you examine the words of the songs that we were singing, you know, lift up your eyes to the Lord, see him lifted up there, big and high, the power of the cross, look at the cross, look at Jesus. There's that saying, isn't there, that some Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But I would say we're not heavenly minded enough, and that is why we're not earthly good so many times. David Wells is a professor of a seminary in the US, and he wrote about uh, the tragedy of, of 9-11, and he said this, he said, this moment of tragedy and evil shone its own light on the church, and what we came to see was not a happy sight. For what has become conspicuous by its scarcity, and not least in the evangelical corner of it, 
is a spiritual gravitas, one which could match the depth of horrendous evil and address issues of such seriousness. Evangelicalism, now much absorbed by the arts and tricks and marketing, is simply not very serious anymore. So I live in the mountains, and as I, I climb to the top of these mountains sometimes, and there's a lot of busyness going on down below, and as you climb and you get elevation, the busyness seems to fade away, and you see the views just across. You see the majesty of creation, and there's a peace that comes with that, and you get a certain perspective on things. You get a certain perspective because you're up there. You're seeing the, the bigness of everything. I don't know how you all come here this morning. Life's busy. We've got our own problems, our own trials, our own sufferings, and we can get focused in on the minutiae of, of these things. But we need perspective. We need a big vision of a big God, and this is what will sustain our Christian lives. We need to see what it's all about. What's the purpose to give us this perspective? And this will give us the motivation to live the Christian life, to trust during times of suffering, not simply just want to get out of it. So much of Christianity today is saying, God loves you, has a great plan for your life, and he just wants you to be happy and comfortable all the time. No. God has a plan for sure, and it's a plan for joy, and it's a plan for, for great love, and it, it's a, there's a destiny in view. But in this life, you will suffer. So I want us to see in this text today the bigness, the size, the majesty of God and the power of the gospel. I've given this, this sermon a title and, I, and I've said, seeing the sovereignty of the Lamb who was slain makes true worshippers of all nations. Seeing, seeing the sovereignty of the Lamb who was slain makes true worshippers of all nations nations. So I want to read the text. It's from Revelation 5. It's the whole of Revelation 5. This is a vision of John. The book of Revelation is a difficult book to understand, but the central um, part of Revelation is verse, uh, chapters 4 and 5, the throne room scene around which everything else revolves. So chapter 5, I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, what a vision that is. What a picture that is of the end of time of heaven, of a throne upon which you are seated with the Lamb who was slain with you, central to the worship of people from every tribe and tongue that he has bought with his blood by the power of the cross. Lord, give us a mind today. Give us a mind to, to, to embrace this and give us eyes to see who you really are. Give us eyes to see the majesty of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. His sovereignty over all things, over all the nations, over our lives. Give us eyes to see and hearts to embrace this Jesus Christ in our lives today. And let that be our motivation as we walk out from this place into the world around. Ignited by the truth that we have been bought by his blood. We pray for a big vision, Heavenly Father, a big vision of Jesus Christ slain for sinners and risen again. In his name we pray. Amen. So I've given you the overall truth there, the overall line, but I want us to see four things, four things which I hope to point out from the text, rooted in the very word of God, Four truths to see, and the first truth is this. See the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. See the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Verse 1 says this. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. We see God on the throne, sovereign, ruling, reigning over the whole universe. And in his right hand, he holds a scroll. Now, the scroll contains the blessing and judgments and purposes and destiny of the world. God is on the throne, and he holds the destiny of everyone in the palm of his hand. We need to see who this God is. And one verse back, in Revelation 4, Verse 11, we see that he's the creator of all things. Worthy are you, O Lord, and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed. So he is sovereign, and he is creator over all things, which gives him full sovereign rights. He created the heavens and earth, and he created it good. So he's not only sovereign, he's not only creator, he's a good creator. And in other parts of Revelation, 
we see that he's holy. He's a holy, good and sovereign creator. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the angels sing. So this is the very character of the God who is seated on the throne. He's sovereign over all things. He's the creator of all things. Job 38, when Job has been complaining after a while that he's been suffering so long, God appears to him out of a a whirlwind. And uh, he takes him on a tour of the universe and just says to him, I just created all this, you know, where's your wisdom? And he says to this, "Do do do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Do you govern planets? Do you know where they've come from? Do you know how to sustain them? In other words, look at me. I am God. I've created all things. We only have to look out into our solar system from from down here. Do you know that they have these pictures now of the galaxies from way out there? I don't know if you've been on Google Earth. I've done it sometimes. Google and doodle around the universe a little bit. Um, 100,000 kilometers away from the Earth. You're only a quarter of the way to the moon. At a million kilometers, you can barely see the Earth. At a 1,000 million kilometers, you're still not at the sun. At 10 trillion kilometers, the sun looks like a dot. At 10 light years away, the sun is just a speck. Get past 1,000 light years away, and you can just see our Milky Way galaxy in which the Earth is buried as one of 200 to 400 billion stars. And they estimate that there are 100 to 2 billion other galaxies. 100 to 200 billion other galaxies. So let's just take our galaxy, the Milky Way. At 100 million light years away, you can see clusters of galaxies not even distinguishing our galaxy. Yet it would take 100,000 light years to get from one end of the Milky Way to the other. Now you don't have to do the math here, but I'm just telling you, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. A light year is when light travels at that speed for one whole year. So to get from one end of the galaxy to the other, you'd have to travel at 186,000 miles per second for 100,000 years. Now Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So God is saying in this creation, this is me. This is a bit like me. We so often think that the universe was created to house man. But it wasn't. It was created to display who God is. It was created to display his size, his majesty, his eternality, his beauty, his perfections. This is the God who is creator of all things. This is the God who sits on the throne, who holds the destiny of all peoples in the palm of his hand. And we're so easily impressed with the skill and strength and power of a man running 100 meters in under 10 seconds. Or the skill and strength and power of a Spanish football team. And then we look at God and we see what we were truly made to praise and worship. And this means that God doesn't need us. We must see God rightly in order to serve him rightly. It means that we we need to know that God doesn't need us to serve him. We don't add anything to him. 
He's completely self-sufficient. But in his mercy, he invites us to join him in his work. A.W. Tozer said this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said this, I fear that thousands of younger persons entering Christian service have entered from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged and you have the true drive behind much Christian activity today. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. He created a universe and, and people in it as the pinnacle of his creation out of the fullness of who he is in his grace and mercy. And the beauty of God is he wants to reveal himself to us so that we would find our true pleasure in him. So many Christians think they add to God's glory as if to say, I glorify God. I magnify God. Like I make this little tiny God look a bit bigger to people. But, but, but magnifying and glorifying God is actually working the other way. It's like, um, it's like a telescope. When we magnify God, like a telescope, we bring into something far too big for people to see into their vision. That's how we magnify and glorify God. God is not just an add-on to your already good life. A God who will join you on your mission in the world. A sovereign God is holy and he's creator and he's ruling over all things. He's sovereign over all people. He's sovereign over all nations. He's sovereign over all events and he holds the future of everything and everyone in his hand. And that's good news. That's good news. It's good news that a sovereign, holy and good God is in control of the world and not David Cameron or Barack Obama or Kim Jong-un or Robert Mugabe or Hu Jintao or you or me. While man strives for knowledge and power and happiness, always facing death, always facing disaster, while man worries about the future, God holds the future of everyone and everything in his hand. This is the picture in that verse. And that's the first truth that we need to see as John takes us up there. See the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. That's the first point, which leads me to the second truth to see. See the absolute hopelessness of man apart from Christ. See the absolute hopelessness of man apart from Christ. Verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You see, the scroll is in God's hand it contains a purpose for the world. And John weeps loudly. He weeps loudly because the silence that meets the angel's proclamation of who is worthy to open this scroll and break its seals, the silence testifies to the sinfulness and hopelessness of mankind. No one is worthy. Can anyone approach the throne of a sovereign and holy God? The picture is hopeless. The picture is hopeless. 
So see man's need for Christ. Now consider the state of those apart from Christ. Guilty. Guilty before a holy, righteous, sovereign God. Your neighbor, your family member. You say to me, what about the innocent man who's not heard the gospel of Christ, who who lives in a a tribe somewhere in, in the darkest reaches of wherever? Does he go to heaven? I say yes. It's just that that innocent man doesn't exist. The scripture tells us that everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty because they've rejected God. All are guilty before a holy and sovereign God. And what makes them guilty is not rejecting the gospel or having the uh, chance to hear the gospel, it's their sin. It's only the gospel that can save anyone. That's why we've got to know the gospel, and that's why we've got to take it to other people. Romans 1, Paul says this in Romans 1.18, What may be known about God is plain to everyone, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. You see, in creation, God has revealed himself to everyone. Whether you've heard the gospel or not, God has been revealed. Enough of God has been revealed. But although they knew God, Paul says, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. But they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see what he's saying here? Everyone has a certain knowledge of God, but everyone's a sinner because everyone suppressed that knowledge from within their heart. We must know this for ourselves and we must go with this news. The hopelessness of man apart from Christ The Bible is clear about the sinful deadness of mankind and its consequences. And we just can't dumb it down. Christianity today has dumbed down the hopeless estate of sinful mankind. Just here, you don't have to look these up, but just hear the scripture's testimony about what it means to be dead in sin. It means to be cut off from God's presence, Genesis 3. Alienated from God, Colossians 1. Separated from Christ. To be dead in sin is to be an enemy of God, Romans 5. To be dead in sin is to be a slave to sin, John 8. To be dead in sin is to be dominated by Satan, 2 Timothy 2. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in sin, and thereby we are children of wrath. So to be dead in sin is to be condemned by God and to sit under his wrath. Jesus says in John 3, we are lovers of darkness. We run from the light. Paul says in Ephesians, we're darkened in our understanding. And this affects our whole being. Our deadness infuses every facet of who we are. Our minds are blinded, Romans 1. Our emotions disordered, Romans 1 again. Our bodies defiled, Romans 1 again. The thing is that we are systematically morally evil. Genesis 8 says that every inclination of our heart is evil from childhood. So we're spiritually sick. It's not that it's not that we are sinners because we do sins. 
We sin because sin is in us already. We sin because our hearts are sinful. It's this systemic thing. And the result of that is that we sit under the condemnation of God, under his holy wrath, which is his right and just response to sin, an offence against the holy God. And to stay under the wrath of God is to be condemned to hell. Hell is no light thing. No light thing. And we need to speak about it with, with tears in our eyes. Jesus speaks about it more than any other person in the Bible. He says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who is able to cast soul and body into hell. In Matthew 25, he's speaking about the last judgment. And he says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels. And again, he says later on, Those to the left shall go away into eternal punishment. Hell is an eternal conscious experience of the wrath of God upon you. Revelation 14. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. To be condemned to hell is to remain eternally, consciously under the wrath of God. David Platt, an American pastor, preacher, says this, the way that we talk about hell, it's a hell of a game. Oh, that's a hell of a song. The way that we talk about hell shows we have no idea what we are talking about. The ultimate consequence of everyone's sin is that they sit under the wrath of a holy and sovereign God. Everyone stands guilty. The question is, can anyone be saved? Our problem is not that we've messed up a few times. Our problem is not that we've made a few bad decisions. Our problem is that we're dead in sin, under wrath. And this is why John's weeping. This is why he's weeping loudly as he looks and, and he sees the, the inability of sinful man to ascend to the throne of God. It's the question of every religion. How can a sinful man dwell with a holy God? How can a righteous God show a hatred for sin and sinners and at the same time a mercy for sin and sinners? And every answer these religions come back with is that you have to earn your way back to God. Believe in yourself. Trust in yourself. Self-esteem is even preached from the pulpit in the church. It's a default position of many. Well, I'm a good person. I'm better than that person over there. They compare morality on a horizontal level. But when you compare to a holy God and you see the offence of sin against the holy God, you see the guilt that we all stand in. Men have repeatedly tried to work out their own salvation and that of the world. Thought systems, ideologies, philosophies built upon one human mind after another to show the way to happiness, righteousness, to peace, for a better world, and all have utterly failed. You see, human wisdom can't return us to paradise lost. Human leaders throughout history have tried to establish their own kingdoms from the well-intentioned to the thoroughly evil. Superpowers have come and superpowers have gone. Great Britain, Russia, Greece, Persia, Turkey. 
and America will fall. If you believe history, if you believe the Bible, no one's worthy to take this scroll. Man needs a rescue act. This is why John weeps. Abraham's quiet, Moses is quiet, David and Elijah's mouths are shut. John's looking into eternity and its hopelessness without a mediator to stand in the gap between the throne of God and creation. So the second point is to see and to weep with John at your own soul apart from Christ. See and weep with John at the absolute hopelessness of man apart from Christ. But wait, there's good news. Look again at the text. There's, there is someone. There's hope. Third point. See the absolute worth of the slaughtered lamb of God. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Behold, we see a lion. The lion's royal. He's powerful. He's from the tribe of Judah. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah promised centuries ago from the patriarchs of old. In Genesis 49, it says this, the lion of the tribe of Judah to whom shall be the obedience of all the peoples. He's the root of David. Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall be upon him and he will stand as a signal for the peoples. Jeremiah, I will raise up, declares the Sovereign Lord, for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. This is the lion from the tribe of Judah. This is the king who stands forward. In all of history, all men and women have fallen prey to sin, to bondage to Satan, and succumb to death. People have come and people have gone. Great leaders and evil leaders. Men and women who have achieved much in this world. Much that we would call good. But all have fallen prey to sin, Satan and death. But then came a man. A man who didn't fall prey to sin. He holds power over sin. A man who's not in bondage to Satan. He's a slave of righteousness. A man who does not succumb to death. He defeats death. That's Jesus Christ. And look how this Jesus Christ does it. Look how Jesus Christ, who is the Lion of Judah, does it. Look how he conquers. He conquers as a slaughtered lamb. The Lamb of God. John is told, behold the Lion of Judah. And as he turns, he sees a lamb who looks as if he's been slain. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it's been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Here's the fulfillment of the Exodus Passover lamb, the sacrifices for sin made throughout the Old Testament. John the Baptist knew it when he saw Christ. Look, he says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was Jesus Christ who stood forth as the sacrifice who would make atonement for sins, who would exhaust the punishment of holy wrath and hatred for sin, which God must pour out. He dies on the cross, and apparent defeat gives way to eternal triumph. And he does it by suffering on the cross. What humility! What humility that God 
would condescend to do this. What grace, what love. It's Christ's sacrifice that cleanses sinners from guilt and from condemnation. It's Christ's perfection that's then counted to sinners through faith in Him. His perfect life is our perfect life and we're clothed with His righteousness and and God looks upon us and He sees His perfect Son. What a great exchange on that cross. He was beaten and stricken and marred and afflicted, wounded and pierced and pulverized in our place. He stood for you and for me personally on that cross. And yet bearing the scars of his slaughter, this lamb stands. He went willingly to the cross so that all who are covered by his blood will be saved and have life in him. But he has risen and he stands victorious over death. He not only endured death for us, he conquered death. And he conquered death by rising from it. He died as the slaughtered lamb of God. And he rose victorious over death. We worship a living God, a living Christ. Therefore, he is the only one worthy. The only one who has authority to take that scroll from the hand of God. He is the one worthy to hold the future of the world in his hands and carry out God's plans. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated at the throne. What an amazing thing that Jesus Christ could step forward and just pluck that thing from God's right hand. Worthy to do so. He is sovereign. He is fully qualified. He has all power and authority. Seven horns depicting full power. Seven eyes, full sight and and, and knowledge over all things. Uniquely qualified, fully, to take that scroll. No one worthy except him. Sovereign over all. But you say God is sovereign. And Christ is sovereign, yes. Christ is equal to God. What a picture of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Fully man yet fully God. Jesus is the only one who can execute the sovereign will of God because he's God himself. Therefore, only through faith in Jesus Christ can anyone be saved. He is exclusive. Buddha was a sinner. He was not God and he did not die for you. Muhammad was a sinner. He was not God and he did not die for you. Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah and Paul were all sinners None of them was God, and they did not die for you. Christ is the unique God-man who did it, which makes him the only way back to God. It's he who freely offers forgiveness of sin to all who will just trust him for their righteousness, their right standing before God. For all who would have him as their sovereign Lord and Saviour. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is great news. This is the gospel. Salvation through sacrifice. The consummation of God's kingdom through the slaughter of God's son. What a paradox. Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, the name that everyone will bow under everyone 
on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So see the worth of Christ. See the absolute worth of the sovereign, slaughtered Lamb of God and praise His name. Praise His name. That's point three, which leads me to the final point. Point four, to see. See the absolute power of the gospel, of this gospel, to make a worshipper of you and of people from every nation. Every nation. Reading on, verse 8. Four living creatures and 24 elders fell down and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You see, now the scene turns to the worship of the sovereign Lamb of God, equal to God and worthy of all praise. And the only appropriate response to this Jesus Christ is worship. What makes him especially worthy of worship, that's what worship is. We worship that which we ascribe worth to. What makes him especially worthy is his death. His death for people from every tribe and tongue. Look, worthy are you to take the scroll for, that's the ground clause, because you were slain. It's the slainness of the lamb that makes him worthy. And by his blood, he's ransomed people from every tribe and tongue. You see, the death of Jesus particularly purchased you and me. Ephesians 1 speaks about you are chosen in him before the foundation of the earth. Don't forget that. The, the work of the cross and Christ is unfathomable. Before the foundation of the earth, to think that you and I were in the mind of God, in Christ Jesus, that's a stunning truth. Hold on to that and ponder that truth. Let that strengthen you in times of fear or doubt or struggle or affliction. When you're struggling, when you're in difficulty, think this. I've been loved by God in Christ before the foundation of this earth that I'm on now. And his son bought me by his blood on the cross. I'm loved. Whatever I'm suffering here now, God will always be doing it for my good. Somehow he's going to be working it out for my good. So if I get self-pitying in a moment of suffering and trial and just think, I've got to get out of it. No, wait, think. I'm being loved by God at all times. That will sustain you. Let that help you defeat the power of sin in your life. Realize this. Feel his love for you. Chosen, beloved, forgiven, justified. No more condemnation or guilt. Free. Let that help you suffer through trials and difficulties in this life because there will be many tribulations and you will enter the kingdom through those tribulations. Peter says, don't be surprised, people. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes to test you as if something strange were happening. As you follow the path of the Lamb who was slain, you will suffer. The Christian life is not have your best life now. Rock solid confidence in sovereign, unconditional love, never changing, even when I fail, 
Make no mistake, this isn't an excuse for sin, but it frees us to obey gladly. So seeing the sovereign particular purchase of your soul by the slain Lamb of God will serve your own worship. Not just here on a Sunday, but when you go out into that world during the week. See the bigness of it. See the size of it. But see this as well. If you only see the atonement of Christ, the cross of Christ, as you and Him, or even you and your church and God, just us here today, then you're missing the big point. On the cross, Christ purchased His bride, which consists of individual people from every people group in the world. That's a picture of a church with great diversity and the power of the cross to undercut ethnocentric pride and gather people from, from, from different cultures together, all in worship around the Lamb. It's a great mandate for a multicultural, diverse church in the local setting, but it's also a mandate that we must go with this good news to the nations because Christ has purchased people from all of these places. We think of nations as just countries, but the nations that the Bible talks about is people groups. It's, it's, it's ethno-linguistic groups, and there are over 12,000 of them in the world, and over 6,000 of these people groups remain unreached. 6,000, which contains 2 billion people. 2 billion people unreached. Unreached doesn't just mean lost, like we might think of um, a family member who's lost. Unreached means they have no access to the gospel. It hasn't penetrated their culture, their, their ethno-linguistic group. It hasn't got in. There's no church, there's no preacher, there's no Bibles. And they sit under the wrath of God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've got to take this gospel to them. And Jesus Christ died to purchase people out of every one of these groups. So when, when we go on mission, when we're praying for, for, for missionaries, we can pray with confidence in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ because he has bought people with his blood. And as that gospel's preached, someone's coming out somewhere at some time. And we go and we do and we do the Christian life when we see it like this. We don't do it out of guilt. We don't obey out of duty. But we obey out of glory. And we obey out of joy and delight as we see the sovereign Lamb of God. So see the absolute power of the Gospel for you and me individually, for us as a local church here, for the local community, and out to every nation in the world. That's the fourth point. So who knows the ripple effects of London 2012. But look with spiritual eyes and, and see the possibilities. See with John the big picture. It's not mainly about coming together with the world around the Olympics to, to see these athletics competed at the highest level. It's not mainly to watch and praise human achievement human strength and human power. It's about more than that. It's about having an eye on the sovereign purposes of God to bring all nations to the praise of the name of Jesus Christ, His Son. 
and he has sovereignly ordained that it will happen through his church. So we pray with this in mind, in conversations that we might have in a local community, and making Christian gospel partnerships with others, and we might strike up with other nations, other countries. It means taking this good news, the only hope for anyone, to the people around us and to the unreached peoples far away. It's about proclaiming, like the strong angel in this text, who is worthy to take up the scroll and to break its seals and then giving them the answer, the only answer, the Lord Jesus Christ. People who believe that the slain Lamb of God is the sovereign Lord of the universe will go to difficult places, have the difficult circumstance and, and, and get into it and go towards people and have that conversation even when it costs them. They'll persevere through trials. They'll go to difficult places abroad. In Africa where there are 3,000 animistic tribes devoid of God. 350 million Buddhists who say that God is not worthy of glory. 950 million Hindus following more gods than you can name. One billion people in places like China, North Korea and Cuba in communistic philosophies denying the very existence of God. Add to that 1.3 billion people in the Middle East and North Africa and Central Asia fasting and giving alms and making pilgrimages to Mecca for a false god. It means prayer and it means proclaiming the absolute sovereignty of the Lamb of God over the entire world. The absolute hopelessness of man apart from Christ. The absolute worth of the slaughtered Lamb of God in the rock-solid confidence that he has purchased people from every tribe and tongue. One thing's for sure, one thing is for sure, that while Christ has not returned, all the nations haven't been reached, and our task isn't finished. Today, in this text, the finish line's in view. The final few verses depict praise rippling out from the nations to thousands of angels until the whole of creation sings to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Christ is the beginning, the middle and the end and his gracious gospel serves our hope in the present, until this gospel has been proclaimed to all the nations and the sovereign slaughtered Lamb of God receives the full reward for his sufferings and the worship of which he alone is worthy. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for this vision that gives us just a, a little insight into the size of, of the gospel, into the power of the cross, into the worth of Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ who has personally and particularly bought us by his blood, yet bought people from every tribe and tongue. We see your, your holiness and your sovereignty holding the destiny of this world in, in your hand. We see our absolute hopelessness and deadness in sin apart from Jesus Christ. We see our need for a, a rescuer, one who would ransom us. And in your great love, in your great mercy, you have sent Christ to us and for us. And he willingly 
went to that cross, took your wrath upon himself, absorbed it, drank the cup of wrath to the very last drop, turned it over and said, it is finished, done, paid for, they are mine. And Heavenly Father, we take this message into the world around us in a local community and into the world afar, knowing that one day we will all be gathered as brothers and sisters around the throne of the Lamb who was slain, singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is that Lamb. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.